0: Good morning church. It is so good to see you, those that are in this room, and it's so good to know that there are so many more that are joining us online this morning. I love you. I appreciate you. I said last week, and I will keep telling you that I can't imagine any other church family that I would rather go through this time, this weird time of ours with, than this church family. Thank you for being who you are, for treating each other the way that you do, for trusting and loving the Lord the way that you do. We're starting a new series this morning, all under the umbrella that we introduced last week, Fixing Our Eyes on Jesus. And with that in mind, I think it's okay for us to admit right now that things aren't okay, right? Can't we, I think we can all acknowledge and admit that, whether you're at home watching or you're sitting in this room, whether you're thinking about what's going on across the country or across the world, or whether you're thinking about the things that are going on in your own personal life, I think it's okay for us to admit that right now things are not okay, they're not all right, they're not ideal, they're not the way we want them to be, but... Fixing our eyes on Jesus allows us to be okay when things are not okay, right? That's what this month we're going to spend some time thinking about, that fixing our eyes on Jesus allows us to be okay when everything is not okay. We can admit everything is not okay. Everything is not all right. Everything is not ideal. Everything is not the way I want it to be, but I'm okay. I'm okay with things not being Okay, I'm okay because my eyes are fixed on Jesus. And so with my eyes fixed on Jesus, I can be patient. I can endure. I can be steadfast. I can wait for the Lord. But one of the things that undermines patience, one of the things that undermines patience is platitudes you know what a platitude is or a cliche or an axiom things that that seem true i mean they seem very con- like common sense and they seem self-evidently true when i was a kid one of the little Proverbs that we used to live by and that we would mock each other with was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? I mean, that sounds so commonsensical, right? I mean, it sounds so obviously true that sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but, but words just bounce off of me, right? I mean, that, they, they won't hurt me. I, that sounds fine until somebody says something mean to you, right? And then guess what? It does hurt right? Words do hurt. That's just a platitude. It's just a cliche. It's just an axiom that sounds good, and it sounds fine, but it's hollow, and it's shallow. When things get hard and things get tough, then our platitudes get challenged, and guess what? Sometimes they don't carry us through. It takes more than platitudes to persevere, And that's what this month is going to be all about, is challenging those things. That's what today's lesson is all about, is challenging some of those thoughts that seem so obvious and so true, and we kind of build our house on them, but just like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount ends, that sometimes we realize we've built our house on sand. One of the, the platitudes or axioms that we tend to say is something like, God helps those who help who? themselves, right? We've heard that. We may have even said that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, that saying goes all the way back to to ancient Greece, Aesop's fables, and then it got carried over into modern thinking, and we tend to just assume that's true. God helps those who help themselves. And what we mean by that is if you work really hard and you do everything you can to have a good and comfortable and healthy life, then God will also show up and help you And then so we kind of look around when things are going well, and you say, well, why am I so blessed? Why does God take such good care of me? And we say, well, you know, because God is good, but also because I've made some really good choices and I've done things the right way and I'm generally a good person and because I've worked hard and I've made good choices and I've done good things, then God has shown up and he has blessed me. So we kind of thank God and we kind of thank ourselves and we say, you know, I, I've made some good choices and so God blessed me with that. And that sort of theology, those sort of platitudes and cliches, they they work and they make sense as long as everything is pretty well comfortable, right? And as long as we're comfortable, we can say, well, it's we're comfortable and we're healthy and we're happy and successful because we've made good choices and because we've made good choices, God has blessed us because God helps those who help Themselves. In fact, you could turn on any television at any time of day and you could probably find a preacher who's preaching a message a whole lot like that, right? You make good choices, think positive thoughts, do good things, and God will show up and he'll bless you and you'll be successful and happy and healthy and God will help you if you think the right thoughts and do the right things and say the right things, then you'll have a successful and happy and healthy prosperity-ridden life, right? And, And that sort of thinking makes sense as long as everything is comfortable. But as soon as things are not comfortable, as soon as the suffering begins, as soon as that theology is challenged, as soon as we begin to suffer and have hardship, then we start to wonder what went wrong. And when we start to suffer, we can say, well, maybe I'm at fault. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I'm to blame for this suffering. And then if we look around, we say, well, I don't get it. What did I do wrong? There are a lot of people this morning, maybe in this room, maybe watching online, but certainly some of your friends and family that are wondering right now, what did I do wrong to deserve what I'm going through? Because they've built their life on this sort of platitude, on this sort of idea that God helps those who help themselves, and if God's not helping you, then you really haven't done your part, and you haven't worked hard enough, and you haven't been good enough, and so they start to blame themselves. Or they may look long enough and say, well, I don't know what I did, so maybe it was God, and maybe God is mean, or maybe God isn't real, and there's a lot of people that don't believe in God anymore because they've built their life on that platitude. But maybe, maybe there's a third option, that we don't necessarily blame ourselves, and we don't blame God, but we begin to blame our bad theology. And we start to say, well, maybe maybe there's something wrong with our thinking. Maybe there's something wrong with our theology. Maybe there's something wrong with our platitudes. Maybe, maybe suffering often accompanies faithfulness. Maybe suffering often accompanies faithfulness. Maybe when we're faithful to God, sometimes we have to go through hard things. And so maybe, maybe something hasn't gone wrong. Maybe this is the way that things are going to be. Maybe this is the course that is laid out for us. And that's what we find in the book of Job. Look at Job chapter 1. You probably are familiar with this story, but in case you're not, we're going to go through it just a little bit. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz He was incredibly rich, incredibly comfortable, and he worked hard. He made good decisions. He did right things. He served God. He took care of poor people. He was generous and kind and upright, and things were going well. And again, it would be really easy in that kind of a environment, in that context, to sort of think, well, I have all of this stuff because I've made really good decisions, and God helps those who help themselves, right? And and this is why I have all of this stuff. People respected him. He was well thought of. And then look at verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered... This story really gets at the heart of bad theology, the kind of theology that most people tend to have, a theology that's very transactional, right? A a, a theology that believes in a transcendent God that is a very transactional God, a God that's way up there, who doesn't really care about people, it doesn't really have a relationship with people, and a God who, you do the right things, and God will give you the right blessings. And he's kind of like a heavenly vending machine, and you do all of the good things, and make all of the good choices, and believe all the right things, and God will dispense with the blessings. And Satan is saying to God, that's exactly how Job is. He's nothing special. He, he's, he's not special. He's not upright. He's no different than anybody else. The only reason he loves you, the only reason he fears you is because he's using you. He's just like everybody else. He's just transactional. He's doing what he's doing because you give him all the good stuff. Take away the good stuff and he will curse you to your face. He's just like everybody else. This story ought to cause us to look in the mirror because Satan is saying about Job, he doesn't really love you for you, God. He loves you for the stuff that you give him. And so, of course, Satan put Job to the test. His donkeys and oxen were stolen, and his servants were killed. Fire came down from the sky and killed sheep, and the shepherds' raiding parties came and stole his camels and killed his servants, and then worst of all, a storm came and destroyed his son's house, killing all of his children. Now, I mean, we could go into all of the things and realize this is Satan that is doing these things. But then look at verse 20. It says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord and all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. See, Job is proving that he has a unique theology, a unique relationship with God, a relationship with God that's different than most people. This is why Job was unique. This is why Job was outstanding. This is why Job was different because his relationship with God wasn't transactional. His relationship with God was relational. He loved God for God. Job didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. He didn't know what Satan was up to. He had no idea. And even to the end of the story, he still has no idea about this conversation between God and Satan. But Job loves God for God. And Job says, whatever happens, whatever happens, All of my stuff is gone. All of my riches are gone. All of my children are gone. But I will worship God and I will remain devoted to him. Not because of what he gives me. Not because of a hedge of protection he puts around me. But because I love him for him. And Satan says, yeah, but you still haven't hit him where it hurts. Let me, let me attack his flesh. Let me attack his health. And then he'll curse you. Chapter 2 and verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, we could look at Job's wife and say, what a horrible woman she was. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. She's exactly like most of us. She's exactly like most people who see God as being very transactional. God helps those who help themselves. And she knew Job. She knew that Job had helped himself. Job had done everything Right? Job had been good. Job had been outstanding. Job had been the man he was supposed to be. And yet, everything was falling apart, including his own health. And so Job's wife is asking the same question that most people ask. What good has it done? What good has it done to be devoted to God, to do the right things, to be the right kind of person, if this is how you are going to end up? Curse God and die. What's the use in keep putting your prayers into the vending machine if you're not getting any blessings back? The problem is that's not how a relationship with God is supposed to work. And Job understood that, that God is not a heavenly vending machine. His wife didn't. Most people didn't. Most people don't. Most people continue to build their life on ideas like God helps those who help themselves. If I do all of the hard work and I make all of the good choices, then I'm going to be comfortable and prosperous and healthy. And we have to begin to challenge those platitudes But because you cannot persevere through suffering on platitudes. It takes more than platitudes to persevere. You cannot be like Job if you build your house on the sinking sand that God helps those who help themselves. If I just work hard enough and believe the right things and do the right things, then I'll be healthy and prosperous. That's not the way life works. He says to her, verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, Job doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. He simply says, I'm not giving up so easy. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving in. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to endure. And then, of course, Job's friends show up, and they're they're the same as Job has always been. Rich comfortable, prosperous, life is going well, and so their life is firmly planted on these platitudes, right? Job's friends have all of this earthly wisdom, and they think, well, Job, I mean, it's, it's obvious. God helps those who help themselves. So if your life is a mess, that must mean you're not helping yourself. Fix yourself. Do something. Change what you're believing or what you're doing because you're obviously wrong because people's lives don't fall apart like this unless they did something wrong because God helps those who help themselves and they continue to double down and double down and double down on their bad theology. Look at Job 22 and verse 21. They say, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you, right? God helps those who help themselves, And and you could read through a lot of the things that Job's friends say, and you could say, actually, that kind of sounds right, right? That kind of sounds wise. Because we tend to believe these same sorts of cliches and platitudes and axioms and just kind of build our house on these shallow, hollow thoughts that pass as wisdom. But Job calls his friends worthless physicians, Job's friends are worthless physicians, and the sort of medicine that they're doling out, these worthless physicians, are things like proverbs of ashes and defenses of clay and empty nothings. And sometimes we have to stop and ask ourselves, are are these sort of empty nothings the same sorts of things that pass as religious wisdom today? The same sort of religious wisdom that we build our house on today That Job could, you know, they sound okay when everything is going well, when everything is comfortable, when we're healthy and wealthy and happy. But when things start to fall apart and when the storms start to come, these sort of platitudes begin to collapse and you realize they're nothing. They're empty nothings. And you can't persevere on platitudes. You cannot persevere. On platitudes, you can't be like Job because real patience, real endurance, real steadfastness requires a selfless willingness to suffer. An acknowledgement that sometimes suffering accompanies faithfulness. If we get nothing out of the story of Job, and there's so much more that we could explore in the story of Job, but if we get nothing else out of the story of Job, we have to realize that sometimes... Suffering accompanies faithfulness. Yes, sometimes, sometimes you're suffering because you've, you've been sinful. Sometimes you're suffering because you did something wrong. Sometimes there's something to be corrected. And if so, then correct that. But sometimes suffering accompanies faithfulness. And we, we have to have this sort of theology, a theology that revolves around the cross. The cross ought to teach us that suffering sometimes accompanies faithfulness. We have to have the kind of devotion that Job had. He says in chapter 13 and verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job says throughout the book, I don't understand what's going on. And he probably goes too far and he ends up repenting of charging God with wrong. But, but Job says, I don't understand why this is happening, but he perseveres. He's steadfast, he endures, because for him, his relationship with God was not transactional. Job says, I'm gonna be devoted to him, I'm gonna be steadfast, I'm gonna persevere, I'm gonna be patient, I'm gonna wait for him to show up and to show me what's going on, and I'm not gonna give up, I'm not gonna give in, because I hope in him. Now look at how James applies this to Christians in chapter five and verse seven that was just read for us. He says, be Patient, therefore, brothers, until when? Until your ship comes in? Until you get more money? Until this disease goes away? Until what? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I love that word establish, establish to make it firm, make your hearts firm. And church, we cannot make our hearts firm on empty nothings. We cannot make our hearts firm on empty platitudes. We cannot make our our hearts firm on cliches and earthly wisdom. Only in the gospel can we make our hearts firm. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Every single prophet of God suffered. And there wasn't a single prophet that said, you know what, if I would just get my life together, my life would be so much more comfortable. Never! Jeremiah, when he was down in the pit, he didn't say, you know what, this is really my fault. If I would really just have more positive thoughts and I would just think more positively and if I would just be a better person, then I I wouldn't have to go through such challenging times. Never. Because Jeremiah recognized, Isaiah recognized, every prophet of God recognized that sometimes suffering accompanies faithfulness. And this is part of what it looks like to be faithful to God. And they waited for God and were steadfast and were patient. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how he is compassionate and merciful. At the end of the story, God gives Job twice as much as he lost. Right? And and God will do the same for us. He will give us twice as much as anything that we've lost. But we have to wait for the Lord. Not, not wait for this day to end, or this year to end, or this whatever to end. Wait until the coming of the Lord. Wait until the Lord shows up. And that may not happen in your lifetime. But it will happen. Amen? And we have to be patient until then. We have to endure until then. We have to recognize that sometimes suffering accompanies faithfulness until then. And we have to be okay with things not being okay. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be steadfast, to be patient, to having hearts that are established to, as James begins the book of James in chapter one, by saying, consider it all Joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. This is the message of the cross. The message of the cross is not God helps those who help themselves. It's not the message of the cross. If you just believe the right things and do the right things and have the right attitude, then you won't have to go through hard stuff. It's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that God helps those who patiently endure suffering Waiting on him. The message of the cross is God helps those who remain steadfast under trial. The message of the cross is God helps those who sacrifice their own good to help others. The message of the cross is God helps those who wait faithfully for his help. Sometimes the only thing that can fix a situation is waiting. Sometimes the only thing that can fix a situation is God showing up. And so we must endure. We must be patient. We must be okay with things not being okay. Here's how how I want us to end this morning. The patience of Job takes more than platitudes. It takes fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see that what happened to him will happen to us. Suffering, yes. And glorification, yes. Resurrection, yes. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. We will have to take up our cross and follow Him. But we will be raised and we will share in His glory if we're willing to suffer what he suffered, if we're willing to be rejected as he was rejected, if we're willing to wait as he waited, if we're willing to be patient as he was patient, if we're willing to endure as he endured, if we're willing to be steadfast as he was steadfast, this is the message of the cross. And if we build our house on empty nothings, if we build our house on empty platitudes then when the storm comes, our house will collapse. Oh, those platitudes will get us through the comfortable times, all right. And as long as everything is comfortable, and as long as there's no suffering, and as long as nobody calls with bad news, then they'll get us through, and we'll think this is the way that it is. Isn't it obvious? God helps those who help themselves. But as soon as it starts to rain, as soon as the earth starts to quake, as soon as the suffering comes, we realize we need more than empty platitudes. We need Jesus, and we must fix our eyes on him. That's the journey that begins at baptism, and that's the journey that we recommit ourselves to every week and every day as followers of Jesus. And if we can help you this morning to commit your life to Jesus, pray for you, encourage you, help you put Jesus on in baptism, we're here to help you in any way we can. One of our shepherds would love to visit with you at the information desk as together we stand and sing this song.